All right, good evening, guys. All right, good evening, guys. It's good to see you. Um, so that's an interesting song to sing, Little Drummer Boy. Actually, had a, I had a young man uh, one time ask me about singing that song at, at church. Like, his question was, like, why would you sing that song at church? So what do you think was... And, and he's a believer, um, but what do you think was kind of the cause of his asking, like, why would you sing Little Drummer Boy at church? Any thoughts? Rob? It's not in the scriptures, right? Well, I guess, you know, uh, there's probably an ox, although not mentioned, you know, specifically, but some animals. But, yeah, I don't know that they were keeping time or anything like that. Good. Yeah, uh, anything else? Yeah, it's, it's not in the scriptures. And so it's kind of... Uh, it's a fictional song, right? Uh, you know, there was no, there was no little boy playing the drum for baby Jesus in the manger, right? So, so, so I want you to answer the question. So his question, which was, so why would you sing that song at church? So why would we sing that song at church? Because some of you might have that same question. Why would you sing that song at church? Gabby, you have an answer? Okay, you're kind of raising your hand. Okay, go for it. But, um, <coughs> because, um, Jesus is worthy of praise even when he's a baby. Okay, so Jesus is worthy of praise even when he's a baby. Absolutely. Good. Thank you. Anyone else want to take a, take a stab? Offer any thoughts? It's a safe environment. We're family, and we're a small family tonight, so. Clint, by the way, thank you for bringing all your family, because it would, we, like, we'd just be... <laughs> <coughs> So here's my answer, because it's not really, you know, like, obviously it's, it's a fictional song, but if you listen to the heart of the song, right, what's the message of the song? It's kind of like what my daughter said. It's that Jesus is worthy of our praise, and he's worthy of our best gift, whatever it is. And so you think about the words to that song, if there's a little boy who has nothing but a drum, that's all he can do is play the drum. So he has no gift fit for a king when actually he does. He has the only thing he has, which is his drum, and so he plays a song for the baby Jesus. So it's, it's, and so when we sing that song, when I sing that song, I can't speak for you. When I sing that song, I'm not truly singing about a boy playing a drum. I'm singing from my heart that, that Jesus, whatever I have, I just want to give my best to you, whatever that, whatever that gift is. You know, so as we sing that song, I don't know if we're going to sing it next week or not for our Christmas Eve service, but as you sing that song, like think through the, the meaning of the song, it's, I think it's so applicable for the church today. It's that whatever we have, our gifts, our talents, our heart, should be given to the Lord. Amen? All right. I, I, don't, I don't know I convinced y'all, but there we go. Uh, so we're going to get in the Word tonight. You can turn there if you want, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read about some men who brought their best gifts to Jesus when he was not a baby in the manger, but when he was probably a little toddler in the house. Okay, so you can flip there. And uh, <clears throat> by way of reminder, if you were not here with us last week, uh, we had Alex Mendez, who is the director of immigrant missions for EFCA. He brought the word last week out of Luke, and it was about the shepherds who went to go see the baby Jesus in the manger. And his, one of his main points was, was this, just how amazing God is, what it re reveals about God's character, 
that he would choose these lowly shepherds to be the ones to go welcome Jesus into, into his creation. Right? Like he didn't pick religious leaders or powerful people, but he picked these guys who have kind of nomadic lives, who are stinky and, and sweaty and smelly and grungy, and like they're, they're at the bottom of the Jewish social ladder. And yet God would choose them to send an angel to them to say, hey, the Christ child has been born. Go check it out. And so what we're going to see tonight is, and that's a great point that Alex brought, and what we're going to see tonight is that God brings kind of the exact opposite kind of person to meet Jesus as he's a very young child. So before we get into the word, let's pray. Father God, I thank you, Lord, for those who made it out tonight. We know it's a busy time of year, and I pray, Father, for the safety of those who are not with us tonight. Uh, and, but Lord, more than that, I pray that um, whatever they might be doing, out shopping, spending time with family, whatever, that their hearts are committed to you tonight and that you are at the forefront uh, of their minds and of their hearts, Father. We uh, thank you for your word. God, I just pray that your spirit would move through this place and through our, uh, our hearts and our minds tonight. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So we're in Matthew chapter two. We're gonna read just a couple of verses and stuff and then we'll talk a little bit. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So we're going to pause right there and talk a little bit. Just a little, little context, a little background on the Magi. First of all, scriptures do not tell us how many there were. It's popular that you see three. In fact, if you did like a Google search of images for the Magi, you're going to see three, like in every picture. They do not go to the manger. They, we're going to see that they arrive in a house. And they're, they're from uh, the east. That's all we're told. So uh, a little, th- little background on Magi. History tells us that these were highly educated, very powerful, politically powerful men. They were experts in astronomy, astrology, medicine, and natural sciences. And, and they were not kings, as some traditions might Uh, might teach or suggest but they were king makers okay so uh, if a boy or young man was going to become king or had any hope of becoming a king he had to be educated and trained by the magi by the wise men and only if he got their approval or blessing whatever you want to call it could he then become king so they were not kings but they were in some sense more powerful than than kings because they were king makers so we learned quite a bit about uh, the Magi in verse 2, like why they're looking for Jesus. It says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star. So apparently they're, they're and these are not Jewish men, right? These are, these are uh, Gentile pagan leaders from the east somewhere, Persia, maybe as far away as India. And they see a star. And somehow they know that that star marks the sign that the Christ child has been born. Leviticus, I'm sorry, Numbers 24, 17 says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So the Old Testament scriptures tell us that a star would signify the birth of the Messiah. 
So how would these pagan guys who live far away in a foreign land know that? Anyone want to venture a guess? Pure, I, and the scriptures don't tell us exactly how they know, so it would be a guess. Rudy. How would they know that that star signifies the birth of the Messiah? Because these guys were not trained in the Old Testament. They don't know the law. They weren't exposed to the prophets. How would they know that there was a star that would signify the birth of the Messiah? The only thing I can conclude is they were trained in astronomy. They yes. Absolutely. Trained in astronomy. They follow the stars. And if you go back to the book of Daniel, when Daniel is held captive, he gains the king's favor and is made the head of the... Magi. And so I don't think it's a stretch to say that what Daniel taught those men was carried on for generations. So these wise men knew that when the star appeared, that the Messiah would be born. We can't know that for sure, but it's certainly, I think, a possibility. So we learned that, that they saw a star, his star, and that began their pursuit of the Messiah. And they have come with one goal in mind, one objective, and that is to worship him. That's really important on a couple levels. Like we said, these are not Jewish religious leaders. These are pagan Gentile men who, who know nothing of the scriptures except what might have been handed down from many, many generations ago. They are far removed from the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion. And here's why that's an important point from this text. Because Jesus is Savior of all. Of all all. He is the light of the world. Whether you are a poor shepherd outside Jerusalem or a powerful political figure in a foreign land or a public school teacher on the south side of town or a student at UTSA or a stay-at-home mom on the north side of town, the truth is Jesus came to be born in a manger for you to live a perfect life for you to take on the punishment for your sin, to go to the cross for you, to be raised from the dead for you so he could be worshiped by you. He is the light of the world. So these men who had no exposure to the law, to the prophets, to religious teaching of the Jews, Gentiles who are far away have journeyed a long way to come in pursuit of the Messiah. And we see Herod's reaction in verse 3. He is troubled. And not only that, but all of Jerusalem is troubled with him. That word troubled literally means agitated and shaking. Like, these people are so upset. There's, there's going to be a riot almost. They are visibly shaken by the news. You see, the question is, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Herod was known as king of the Jews. So he, he's afraid he's going to lose his kingdom. But what about the people of Jerusalem? What about the Jewish people? Why would they be so troubled? A little background. Herod was a, a pretty shrewd leader. He knew how to stay in power. That was to appease the people. So he gave the people just enough of what they wanted to keep them happy. He built the temple that the Jews worshipped in. Twice, he cut taxes by 25%. Wouldn't that be nice? He kept people happy, and so now there's coming news that Herod might not be king for much longer, and the people are afraid that their little kingdoms are going to be lost too. 
So the town is abuzz with news that the Savior has been born and lives might be turned upside down. Verse 4, And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child. And when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. So Herod calls the people together, the chief priests and the the scribes together, and he wants to know where the Savior is to be born. And they respond with a passage from Micah 5.2, which tells them Bethlehem. Now, uh, depending on your translation, it might not seem like they're actually talking about a Messiah. Right? He'll, he'll lead or rule over the people of, of Israel. And they ask the question back in verse uh, 2, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? So we might be tempted to think that they don't really know that these men came to seek the Messiah. But make no mistake, Herod and the chief priests and the scribes know because what was his, his question? Verse 4, he inquired where the Christ or the Messiah was to be born. So, so some people might read that text and go, well, how come, like, how do we know, how do they know that it's the Messiah, not just an earthly king? No, they know where is the Christ to be born. And what's really interesting is, by quoting Micah 5.2, they answer the, just the specific question. He'll be born in Bethlehem. What's really interesting is they don't finish quoting Micah 5.2. Here's the last, you can look it up for yourself. Here's the last part of Micah 5.2. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. They know exactly who the men are looking for. They are looking for the Messiah. He has been from the days of eternity. So it's obvious that they know. So, we, so here's the picture we have in the first eight verses. We have these probably strange-looking men. They probably have those long pointed hats, ribbons flowing down, uh, probably came in on, on large camels or horses. Histor Historian Sellers probably came with an entourage, not just three. These are powerful political figures that needed to be protected. And they are searching for the Messiah. And so they make it to the palace, looking for the king. You'd think he'd be born in the palace. They ask, well, where's he going to be born? They learn it's in Bethlehem. And what's really sad is nobody goes to search for the Messiah except the foreign pagan political leaders. The religious leaders who know the scriptures, who, who can be pretty certain that the Messiah has been born, do not join the search party. The people who are so agitated that their little kingdoms, their comfortable lives, might be turned upside down. Do not bother to go with the Magi to search for the Messiah. And if you don't know the story, please don't be fooled by what Herod said. He has no desire to go worship the Messiah like he says. We won't get there tonight, but if you keep reading chapter 2, it says he ascertained the time of, uh, that they saw the star, and he orders the slaughter of all boys under the age of 2. He does not have worship on his heart. He has murder on his heart. 
verse 10. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 9. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. Can I tell you, I love verse 9. Because the star had gone away. Like they saw the star back in the east, and they go, oh, that's the sign that the Messiah's been born. And so they start this journey. But somewhere along the way, maybe it was immediate, I don't know, but the star's no longer there. So they go, they get to Jerusalem, they're looking for the Messiah, they're told, oh, he's, he's in Bethlehem, that's where he was born. So as they make their way, here they are kind of lost in need of direction. Because you can imagine, how are you going to go find one child in Bethlehem? And talk about the sovereignty of God. The star reappears to direct them to the right place. Consider these verses. Psalm 147.4 says this, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Psalm 8, 3 and 4 says this, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And Isaiah 40, verse 26 says this, Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Yes, God hangs the stars and he names them, but he also does it with intentionality. There is a purpose to his creation. And that star led the Magi, not just to Jerusalem, but to Bethlehem. Verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a little redundant. They rejoiced with great joy. But how else would you capture the feeling of the moment? These men have journeyed a long way to come see the Messiah who has been born. And here's what I, I really love about this verse. They're going to meet the Messiah in verse 11. But it's in verse 10 that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced. They had joyful hearts. They, their hearts overflowed with abundant joy before they ever met Jesus. Why? Because it is with great anticipation that these guys approach the first advent. They are so excited about meeting Jesus that they're excited. They're exceedingly joyful. It overflows from them. So I have to ask, is that our approach to worship on Saturday nights? Like, do we look forward to coming to worship with exceedingly great joy in our hearts to meet the Lord here? And it's not that, so please hear me, it's not that that's the only place where we worship. Our lives should be just an act of worship. But if we just narrowed it down to Saturday nights, do we, do we come here with the great expectation of spending time worshiping the Lord here? Because that is our primary purpose for being here on Saturday nights. Y'all know I love you. I love our family. I love fellowshipping with you. That's a reason why we come here. But the primary reason we come here is to worship the Lord.
You might be thinking, but yeah, Pastor Wes, you don't, you don't know what's going on in my life. I'm struggling in school or work. My marriage is a mess. My family is lost. Life is hard and sometimes I just don't feel like worshiping. And I get it, man. Life can definitely be hard. And we can definitely be discouraged. But we're going to pick up this conversation after we read verses 11 and 12. Cool? Verse 11. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. So we're talking about how life is sometimes hard and it's easy to get discouraged and we might not feel like worshiping. But I, I, I can tell you that I think what's at the heart of that feeling, like I don't want to go worship because life is just, it's beating me down. Is probably, like if you just boil that down to like, what's the really like the foundational thought there? I think it's this. I don't want to go worship Jesus because he hasn't done anything for me this week. You know, life's hard, man. I haven't been blessed. I just don't, I don't, I'm not really in the mood to go worship Jesus. I got no money in my checking account. I got to figure out how I'm buying Christmas presents. Can't even pay my bills. Because the flip side of that is when life is great, man. Whoo, I can't wait. God has blessed me. I'm, I can't wait to get my praise on at Alamo Stone on Saturday night. But that's bad thinking, and that's really bad theology. We do not worship Jesus because of what he has done for us. We worship him, first and foremost, for who he is. For who he is. Because think about these magi, these wise men who pursue him. Jesus is just a baby. Probably 18 months at the oldest. What has he done for them? What can he do for them at that age? Have you ever thought about that? Like these guys, and these guys are powerful political leaders, king makers, and they fall on their faces and worship. How old is Caleb Rodriguez? 18 months. In, I mean, seriously, picture this. If Caleb, if we brought him up here and I fell on my knees, face to the floor, that might be what needs to happen because like, what would be wrong with me? Why would I do that? I would look foolish. That's exactly what these men did to a little Jesus. On their faces to the ground, they bowed down and worshipped him for who he is. Church, true worship of Jesus looks foolish to the world. But those men did not care. They bowed down before a toddler. Jesus hadn't performed a miracle. He hadn't healed anyone. He hadn't taught anyone. He had not gone to the cross yet. And yet, they bring him not only their worship, but they bring their gifts. The best they can give. And it's the gifts that they bring that tell us 
why we should worship Jesus for who he is. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is a gift for a king. It was the most precious, valuable metal at the time. Frankincense is for God. The priest would burn it in the temple as an offering for the sins of the people so they would be forgiven. And myrrh is the gift for one who is going to die. It was used to embalm bodies. And it's in those three gifts that we see the gospel portrayed in this one verse, in this one little scene. These foreign pagan men came to worship the man born to be king who would save them from their sins, dying in their place. But that's not all they gave Jesus. Verse 10, I'll go back. And they, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The best gift they brought to that little Jesus was a heart that worships him for who he is. So the question I will leave you with is this. So will we do the same this Christmas season? It's so easy to get caught up in in the hustle and bustle of Christmas time and focusing on gifts and what we're going to buy or what we might get. But the most important gift we can bring is not for your kid or your spouse or your parent. It is for Jesus and it is the heart of worship. Not just this time of year, but all year. I want to leave you with three truths from our scriptures tonight. Jesus is the Savior of the world. All races all nationalities, all people who have ever lived and will ever lived. And it's because of that that he is worthy of our worship. Not just for what he's done, but for who he is, the Son of God who came to save sinners. And the third truth is this, that God is in total control. Sometimes life is hard, I know. Things are out of our control. And that's a scary feeling to have. But think about how we have seen the sovereignty of God play out in this text. I gotta tell you, I had a coworker who's a friend of mine in California who called me yesterday afternoon. He's about 35 years old. Was diagnosed with cancer the day before. It's a rare form of cancer. I've never even heard of it. He said only about 1,500 people in America have been diagnosed with it. He's married with two young kids. The survival rate for this type of cancer is just 25%. What do you say? I just tried to encourage him. And I told him, I said... I know it's hard to see, but God is sovereign. He is in total control of every detail of your life, even the cancer. And there is a purpose in it. Think about what we've read tonight. In the Old Testament, God said there will be a star to mark the sign of the Christ child. Generations later, some men who live in a faraway land see the star that God hung, and they start their journey. They come to a place where no one will join them in their pursuit of the Messiah. 
And as they make their way to Bethlehem, they don't know exactly where to go. So God has that same star reappear to direct them to exactly where Jesus is located in the house. And then the last verse tells us that, and God told them, do not go back to Herod and tell him what happened. Go a secret way and make your escape. God is in total control of every detail of what we read tonight and in your life. That's a reason to celebrate Christmas. Let me pray, and as I'm praying, if someone wouldn't mind stepping out and getting the kids from Kids Church, they're going to come in and sing us some songs tonight. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the greatest gift the world has ever known, your son, Jesus Christ, who would come enter into his creation. And just the humiliation that that must have been is astounding. So we thank you for that gift. Father, in return, the only thing that we could offer you is our very best. God, may we keep in mind during this Christmas season the gift that you've given us. May we have a heart that is prepared for worship, not just on Saturday nights, but every day. Jesus is the light of the world, the Savior to all, all nationalities, all races, all people. God, I know I have people in my own family, and, and there are people here in Alamo Stone who have family members who are far from you. Lord, may we not get discouraged, but may we trust that you are in control and that there is hope that they would find salvation in your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.